what makes Christianity different from every other religion? That's maybe something that you've wondered. We're constantly told that all religions are the same, but are they? And actually, when we look into the claims of the major religions, we see that they fundamentally disagree. One absolutely fundamental Christian belief that other religions don't share is that of the Trinity. The Father is God, Jesus is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Not three gods, but one God in three persons. And I start with that today because I don't want this series on eldership to become somehow separated from the major beliefs of Christianity. Uh, if you, you think of trains, uh, we, we don't want uh, the eldership to be a, a train that somehow becomes uncoupled from, from the engine of, of who God is and the Trinity. So what do eldership and the Trinity possibly have to do with each other? Well, God is a spirit, that means he's invisible. But in Jesus Christ, the invisible God becomes visible. Jesus is the image of God. But as human beings, we're also made in the image of God. That means we're to display what God is like. But ever since sin came into the world, that's something that we cannot do. But Jesus came into the world not only to take away our sins, but that by the power of his resurrection, he would give us new life that begins here and now. The Holy Spirit comes to live within us and changes our desires so that we now want to live for God. And he also makes us able to live for God. Unlike other religions, unlike every other religion, we, we don't live a certain way to try and earn God's favour but instead having experienced God's favour in Jesus Christ he makes us able and willing to live for him and the evidence of God's work in our lives is seen in something that the Bible calls the fruit of the spirit uh, they're, they're listed in Galatians chapter 5 love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control if the Holy Spirit really has been at work in our lives, then these things will become more and more evident. Uh, someone may be a churchgoer, but, but do they have the fruit of the Spirit in their lives? And when we talk about the qualifications for elders, to a large extent we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit being applied to the elder. That's why so many of these qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 are relevant to all Christians because they're really just applications of the fruit of the Spirit. I haven't actually read anything that, that makes this connection. I'm, I'm sure someone has made it somewhere, but, but just think of them, take self-control. It's both the fruit of the Spirit and a qualification for eldership. And I think if you were to write out all 17 qualifications for eldership in these two lists, you could slot almost all of them under the nine fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness, and an elder must be the husband of one wife. The fruit of the Spirit is goodness, and an elder must be a lover of good. The fruit of the Spirit is peace, and an elder must be peaceable, 
not quick-tempered or violent. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And Paul says that the aim of our charge is love. The fruit of the Spirit is kindness. And Paul says that the Lord's servant must be kind to everyone. The fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. And the Lord's servant must correct his opponents with gentleness. The fruit of the Spirit is patience. And the Lord's servant must patiently endure evil. If you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you're not going to be able to live these things out. But if you have been born again by the Spirit of God, whether man, woman, boy or girl, the Holy Spirit is working these graces into your lives. So the characteristics that we're going to be talking about today, they're not just relevant to those who could potentially be elected as elders. They're relevant to all of us. As I said last week, elders aren't meant to have unusual qualities that no other Christians should have, but rather elders should be men who demonstrate these qualities unusually clearly. And one fruit of the Spirit which sums up many of the qualifications on these lists is self-control. Self-control is something that we tend to think of just in relation to certain areas of life but but the the Greek word behind it means wisdom discernment uh, the ability to make the right decisions in every sphere of life but there are four specific areas of life that are highlighted in these verses four powerful forces which all Christians and particularly elders are to exercise self-control over And those four powerful forces are sex, drink, power and money. Sex, drink, power and money. And even before we get into the details, just think of the difference that it would make to society if people, and particularly men, weren't driven and dominated by these four things. For some here, it would no doubt make a real difference to what their own life might have looked like up to this point. To have had a father or or husband who wasn't dominated by sex, drink, power or money. And yet through faith in Jesus Christ, God is creating a new humanity where these things no longer dominate. Where those whose lives have been scarred by people dominated by these things can come and find a group of people who aren't where people who were once dominated by these things themselves can come and find forgiveness and the power to change and that's actually a a powerful evangelistic message isn't it we can go and say to people come and see what it's like to be part of a community where people are no longer dominated by these things where, where sex, drink, power uh, and money uh, aren't the driving forces because uh, this is a group of people being transformed more and more into the image of their saviour. But on the other side, how tragic it is when Christian leaders in particular fall into sin in any of these four areas. Because it gives the unbeliever the opportunity to look at the church and say, well, underneath all the religious talk, they're just like the rest of us after all. Maybe they're even worse than the rest of us. So these are our four vital areas. None of them are wrong in and of themselves, 
but an elder must be in control of his appetite for them. And in the case of power, he shouldn't have an appetite for power at all. Well, firstly, on the list, an elder must be in control of his appetite for sex. Uh, That's something we looked at last week when we considered the elder's family life. So we'll not go over the same ground again today, other than to point out just how damaging it is when a church leader falls in this area. And for examples of that and the damage that it's done, we don't need to look beyond our own town. An elder must be in control of his appetite for sex only uh, within marriage. Uh, Secondly, on the list, an elder must be in control of his appetite for alcohol. Both lists of qualifications say that an elder mustn't be a drunkard. Unlike Islam, the Bible isn't against alcohol at all, but it is against drunkenness. We can't go as far as the American RP Church once did at a point in its history and require elders to take a vow against drinking intoxicating liquor. That's going beyond scripture. It's something that someone might choose to do, but we have no authority to bind someone's conscience to something that God doesn't tell them to do. But drunkenness is a sin. Uh, Sadly, in our culture, most people, uh, when they drink, it's for the purpose of getting drunk, uh, which is very different from the culture of somewhere like France. But whatever the the culture, an elder must be in control of his appetite for alcohol. And wonderfully, if our church is like the church of the New Testament, there will be those among us who could once have been described by the word drunkards here, but are no longer. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, it's a really sobering verse. Paul writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But then he immediately goes on to say, And such were some of you, but you were washed You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So one of the scariest verses in the whole Bible, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, is followed by one of the most hope-giving as Paul thinks of the congregation there in, in Corinth and says, And such were some of you, but no longer. The New Testament church, it wasn't full of people who had always lived respectable lives. It included people who had once had lives that were totally out of control, but they had been changed by the power of the gospel. One of the qualifications of eldership in 1 Timothy 3 is that an elder mustn't be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And we ignore that at our peril. Sometimes you hear of men going off to train for ministry who've been converted one year, joined the church the next year, started studying for ministry the next. Uh, there's a warning here against elevating men too quickly. <laughs> but don't miss the fact that Paul assumes that there are going to be new converts in the church. Maybe uh, 
you're here and at times you wonder what you're doing in the church. Maybe other people around you seem like they know so much more about the Bible than you and you're still struggling to find out where Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are. Are, are, they, are they people in the church? Are they books of the Bible? But that's what New Testament churches were like. There were people who'd been there for a while, but there were also people who were brand new. Yes, new converts aren't to go straight into leadership, but that doesn't mean that they can never become elders. And it certainly means that if our churches aren't geared up to cope with seekers and new new converts, or maybe maybe cope with isn't isn't uh, the best way to put it. If our churches aren't geared up to to welcome seekers and new converts, so something has gone badly wrong somewhere. Paul he assumes as he's writing to the churches that there will be new converts there. So an elder must be in control of his appetite for alcohol. That, that may mean a total abstinence. Uh, some may choose to do that. Maybe they've a family history or, or the, their own background before becoming a Christian. It may mean moderation. But drunkenness is a quali- disqualifying sin for eldership. And very sadly, once again, this isn't theory for us. Once again, we don't have to look too far to see an example of a man removed from ministry because of this sin. That's not to say that a professing Christian who falls in this area must be an unbeliever. It's not that we don't love them. But it's to say that if this is a habitual pattern in their life, then they can't be a leader in the church. No Christian is to be dominated by alcohol, uh, much less a, a Christian leader. But then thirdly, uh, a Christian mustn't be dominated by the love of power. Uh, back when we looked at First Peter 5, we saw how an elder isn't to domineer over those in their charge. In all walks of life, there are those for whom leadership goes to their head. It gives them a sense of superiority. And rather than humbly serving those in their charge, they want to domineer over them. They want to be dictators. As Jesus walked towards the cross, two of his disciples, James and John, came to him. And they asked if they could sit on his right hand and his left when he sat on the throne of heaven. When the rest of the disciples hear about it, they're indignant, probably because they felt they deserved those positions instead. But Jesus calls them together and he says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. This is what leadership is like in the world, but it shall not be so among you. Why? He goes on, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And who sets that example? Well, Jesus, Jesus himself. We're to follow in the footsteps of our Saviour. He went on, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so 1 Timothy 3, 3 says that an elder must not be violent, but gentle. He's not to be a bully, either with his fists or with his tongue. 
He's not to be someone who tries to intimidate people into doing what he wants. You know, as elders, we, we do want to get people in the congregation to a certain place. We want to get them further on in, in their spiritual lives. But, but that's, that can only be done through the word and through the, the encouragement and, and exhortation of the word. You could ha- have an individual elder or a whole session of elders uh, completely convinced that their position is right. Uh, and maybe it is right. But they dishonour God if they try and achieve that goal through means that aren't worthy of their saviour. Through bullying, intimidation, throwing their weight around, showing the cold shoulder to those who won't conform or whatever. It shouldn't be politics like that going on uh, in an eldership. The word gentle means not claiming all your rights. It means being kind and courteous. It means being reasonable and forbearing with people. Paul uses the form of the same word in Philippians 4-5 when he says, Let your reasonableness be known to all. Sometimes you hear of men in churches and the impression is given that, that if there's an elder election and they're not elected, then they or their family will kick up a fuss about it. But if, if that is the case, then that's exactly the sort of man that you don't want as an elder. Elders aren't to have a love of power. They're, they're not to be, to be grasping for power in, in the first place uh, before they're an elder. And it's not to be something that, that uh, the authority of the role isn't something to, to make them puffed up if they are elected. So sex, drink, power, the fourth key thing that a Christian and particularly an elder shouldn't be dominated by is money. Uh, 1 Timothy 3.3 ends with the words, not a lover of money. Uh, 1 Peter 5 says an elder isn't to be in it for shameful gain. But how will we know if an elder is or isn't a lover of money? And of course... uh, whether, whether someone is a lover of money, someone could be, could be very poor and a lover of money, or someone could be very rich and a lover of money. But, but how will we know? Well, you, you will get a fairly good idea from a man's lifestyle, life his life pattern. Does he spend so much time working that he neglects his family? Uh, what sort of stuff does he spend his money on? Is he a good steward of however much or however little God gives him? Is his lifestyle ostentatious? If he has a lot of money, in other words, is it, is it needlessly flashy? Does he share with? Does he share what he has? Is he hospitable? The problem here isn't having money. It's being closed-fisted with it rather than open-handed. I'll say more about this next week. But even after a man has been elected by a congregation as an elder, it's still up to the current elders to assess whether he meets the biblical criteria. And one question that the current elders will need to ask is, Is this a man who gives generously to God's work? Is this a man who's giving at least a tenth of his income to God? A week or so ago, the BBC had an article entitled, Would you give 10% of your salary to charity? Uh, 
expecting that most people would answer no. It quotes various people who've begun doing just that. There's a scheme, a global scheme called Giving What We Can. It encourages people to give 10% of their earnings to charity. They saw their biggest ever growth during 2020 uh, as COVID and lockdowns made people think more of the bigger picture. And their director is quoted as saying this, 10% was chosen because it strikes a good balance of being both significant and sustainable. It is a significant proportion of one's income, but it is also within reach of most people in rich countries. And as Christians, we're, we're, we're probably reading that and thinking, well, well, we could have saved them a bit of research. One of the evidences of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives is that he opens our hands to, to give to God's work, both to, to keep the work of the church going and the gospel being proclaimed, and also so the church can reach out to those in need, both within the church and outside it. And while the Bible emphasises giving cheerfully more than it emphasises an amount, it does give us the principle that we should give at least a tenth. And elders in the congregation should be leaders in terms of giving. Not necessarily in terms of the amount that they give, but, but certainly in the percentage of the income that they give. You know, that, that's what Jesus is, is more concerned about. Think of the, the widow in, in the temple putting in her, her last two coins. The church father Jerome, who, who lived in the 4th century, said that the glory of a bishop, that is an elder, is to relieve the poverty of the poor. And unlike other organisations, when it comes to the poor, the church cares about spiritual needs as well as physical. The church is in a unique position in that it is able to address both. So Christians and elders are not to be totally dominated, well, aren't to be dominated by, by money at all. It's actually later on in this book of First Timothy that Paul famously says that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil and that it's through that craving that some have wandered away from the faith. But, he says, if we have food and clothing, we will be content. That's pretty countercultural, isn't it? If we have food and clothing, we'll be content. Uh, particularly at, at this time of year. But if we want to be able to convince people that there is another world worth sacrificing everything for... We won't be able to do that if we're clinging on to, to this world, trying to milk it for all it's worth, trying to claim back every last penny we think that we're owed. As Christians, we are going to inherit everything. Let's not act as if our purpose in this world is accumulating as much stuff as we can before we go. As Christians, we're not to be dominated by money. And if we really believe we have a heavenly inheritance, then we won't be. So four uh, major areas where elders are to stand out. There are a few other qualifications that we haven't touched on just yet. Uh, that don't quite fit into those four categories. So just to mention them now in a few words uh, as we draw things to a close a couple of the remaining qualifications could be summed up by the word peaceable. First uh, Timothy three three says an elder isn't to be quarrelsome, 
but it could equally well be translated peaceable as some versions do or not contentious. That's something Paul tells Titus that all Christians are to avoid. Again, these these things are, are, are by and large relevant to all of us. Titus 3 verse 1 remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarrelling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. And being an elder isn't to be an exception to that, as if it's okay to be quarrelsome, contentious and discourteous because the issues are so important. Far from being an exception, elders are to lead the way in this area as well. However provoked they be, they're to respond in gentleness, even if it must be combined with firmness, showing perfect courtesy towards all people, not just those who are supportive of them, uh, not just to those who are encouragers, but also to those who are discouragers perfect courtesy towards all people uh, as Titus 1 7 puts it elders aren't to be arrogant or quick-tempered uh, as 1 Corinthians 13 puts it love is patient and kind it is not arrogant or rude elders aren't to be men who delight in division and controversy either on the local level or in the wider church when I was licensed to preach the gospel one of the vows I took was this Are you willing to take part with us in the public service of Christ, not from ambition or any other carnal motive, but out of zeal for God's glory, love to the Redeemer, and an earnest desire for the salvation of souls, and the promotion of the peace and prosperity of the church? And that bit about the peace and prosperity of the church is so important. And it flows directly from passages like this. An elder is to be peaceable, both locally and at a presbytery level. Then Titus 1.8 says that an elder must be a lover of good. Not just that they do good things because that's what they're supposed to do, but that is to be their heart's desire as it is to be for all of us. Not, not a, a, a do-gooder, someone who's just focused on doing good, but a lover of good. Someone who does good things because that's what God has changed their hearts to give them a desire to do. As Christians, we're to be marked by integrity. Uh, and that, that's part of goodness as well, integrity. We're also to be people who, as the verse ends, are upright, holy and disciplined. And the word upright is particularly important for an elder because it is a sense of fairness and justice. Elders aren't to be men who show partiality. They're not to be men who are swayed by any loyalties other than to what is right and just. Whether that's when, again, deciding cases at the local level or when dealing with disputes from other congregations that may come before them as part of their work in the wider presbytery. So what does the fruit of the Spirit look like in concrete terms, both for ordinary Christians and for elders? Well, we've seen this morning the Apostle Paul's answer. And when it comes to elders, these are qualities that are to be there in such a measure that others can see them clearly. The word respectable in 1 Timothy 3.2 doesn't just mean someone who outwardly looks the part. 
It means having characteristics or qualities that evoke admiration or delight. And that will be the case not just within the church but outside it. Elders are to stand out in each of the areas we've considered today. But they're not just to stand out in the church. They're also to stand out in the world. The first or the list in First Timothy ends with the words, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he must not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. What would a man's leaders think if they heard he was taking on a leadership position in the church? What would his neighbours think? Would they be surprised? Would they be alarmed even? Or do they hold him in high regard? If a man has a reputation in the community, is it a good one? If not, and if that, if that bad reputation is, is deserved, and if, if it's not just from before they were a Christian, if someone who has an ongoing bad reputation would become an elder, that would bring dishonour on the name of Christ. So, an elder election, it, it is... Important for us as a church, we focused on it on its importance for us as a church, but it is important for the community as well. And again, these things are true for all of us. If you have been baptized, you've had the name of Christ put on you. If you're a member of the church, you've publicly stood and taken vows before God. And to go out and live in ways contrary to that isn't just hypocritical, it's dishonoring to Christ and to his cause. Yes, the world around us may not like what we stand for, but they will still be able to recognise if we're good neighbours, good parents, and so on. So if by God's grace we do have an elder ordained here as a result of this process, that's something that will have implications for us as a church, but also for the community around us. And so in these last two weeks we, we've tried to answer the question what should an elder be like uh, based on these passages but in doing so we've also been answering the question really what should any Christian be like if the Holy Spirit has been at work in a person's life what will that look like and in these two lists we see at least part of the answer we see what the fruit of the Spirit looks like when applied to these different areas only Jesus fulfills them perfectly, of course. More than anyone else who ever lived, he showed us what it was not to be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. We feel in so very many of these areas, Jesus not only died that we might be forgiven, he died to make us good. And elders are to embody these things for a community of Christ's people and for the wider community. As they say with the Apostle Paul, follow me as I follow Christ. Amen. Well, in light of these things, we now turn to sing a psalm about lives transformed by Jesus Christ. It's Psalm 15a on page 20. Uh, so the page number at the bottom, number 20, Psalm 15a, that's the, the big number at the top. 
This is a psalm about lives transformed by Jesus Christ and the picture that's only perfectly fulfilled in him. Lord, in your tent who will with you abide and on your holy hill dwell by your side, who walks in uprightness, who works out righteousness, who speaks the truth in all sincerity. As Christians, our lives are to be demonstrations that the power of God is real, uh, that Jesus is alive and that he is transforming men and women and boys and girls. So Psalm 15a, tune 213, we'll stand and sing praise.